Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will uphold thee. I will strengthen thee, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this morning, let's make sure we're in fellowship. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9, and then we will begin our study. I will open in prayer and we'll begin our study. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this privilege and opportunity to gather together in freedom to study your word, to worship you at the highest form of worship, which means to learn what you have said to us, that we may respond by making it a part of the way we think and applying it in every detail of life. Father, we pray that you would Help us to understand clearly through the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit the things that we study today, that even though some of these things may be new, some things may be old, that we would have a greater comprehension of what you are doing in our lives and in the overall realm of human history. Father, again, we pray for our nation. We continue to pray for our president, for those who are in leadership position, both in the military and in civil government, we pray that you would guide and direct them. We pray that uh, at this time that there's such antagonism uh, and such a dichotomy among those in leadership that you would uh, bring about more of a harmony in this nation based on truth. Father, we pray for those who are serving overseas, both in military capacity as well as those who are serving overseas with civilian companies that are especially those who are in Iraq and Afghanistan. Pray that you would watch over them, give wisdom to our leaders as they devise strategy and tactics. Now, Father, as we study your word today, we pray that we would be responsive to your word, that this would not be some academic exercise, but we would be recognizing the fact that these truths are designed to teach us to think about life from a divine viewpoint, to challenge us with all that you have provided for us, and to encourage us to utilize all of the spiritual assets which you have provided for us. So, Father, we pray that you would challenge us now as we study your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 23 to 28. 
Now, sometimes we hit passages in Scripture, and sometimes we hit issues in the text that, that at first glance may not seem to be too uh, applicable to whatever it is that we may be going through in life right now. And you always, I always notice that because we hit a section and we deal with some, perhaps some uh, important yet intricate or detailed theology or doctrine, or somehow the, the text gets, gets into some intricate logic. And you can always tell when it gets that way because people's attention begins to wander, the eyelids get heavy, people start thinking about what they're going to do in their garden this afternoon, or they're sitting there focusing on their sore muscles from the workday yesterday, or they're just tired from the workday, so they tend to let their attention wander. Well, today we're hitting what I think is a really crucial passage because of what it in informs us about God's overall plan in history and how that is working out, especially in relationship to the resurrection. What's interesting here for me is just the way it begins to pull some theological issues together for us, some things that we've studied in the last year. For example, we'll touch on some conclusions we drew from our study on the ascension and session of Christ last summer. We'll also pull together some of the things that we've studied already in our exegesis of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But what I think is uh, fascinating is the way that Paul so quickly, in just a matter of two or three verses, pulls together the significance of the physical bodily resurrection of Christ in terms of its importance and significance for the ultimate resolution of the angelic conflict and human history. And this passage is one that I think, when I've heard it taught before, these issues are just sort of touched on. They're they're skated over. A lot of detail is not brought out here. In fact, I've often uh, heard this taught where it's a bit confusing because of a misidentification of the timing of some of these events. So all of that is interesting, and it's uh, important for just understanding Scripture. But beyond that, I think it's important because it gives us a broader understanding of what what is going, God is accomplishing in human history in relationship to the angelic conflict and how each of us is plugged into that. And so as we go through these details, we'll eventually end on that note with a review of the angelic conflict. And what we see in in this section of 1 Corinthians 15 is an argument from Paul that God has planned a God's plan includes a specific order of resurrections which necessarily begins with the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ and these resurrections are designed to bring to completion the demonstration of God's own integrity and the angelic conflict We began this section last time back in verse 20, uh, 20, back in verse 20, where Paul draws, after laying out a logical argument in verses 12 to 19, Paul shifts the subject, operating on the conclusion that he has demonstrated from these uh, previous statements and previous arguments in verses 12 to 19 that Christ has indeed risen from the dead. He is truly risen from the dead, and that becomes his premise for what he is going to develop in the next uh, 
eight verses. And we will stop just short of that great verse in verse 29. If you've read ahead, you've already wondered what that means. If you haven't read ahead, don't do it now. Just wait till next week. Now I know everybody's going to read ahead because that's the nature of human curiosity. Verse 20 reads, But now Christ is risen from the dead. It is a perfect tense verb indicating the emphasis is on the present reality of a completed past action. Christ is risen. He rose in the past on the day of first fruits. He has risen from the dead with the effect that it goes on for all eternity. And he has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And that's a fulfillment of the Jewish feast of first fruits. That was the first Sunday following this, or the first day following the first Sabbath after Passover. And it was a type of the resurrection of Christ, that at the beginning of the harvest, they would have a special field where they raised the barley and they would roast it and they would uh, grind it and make flour and make bread. And then they would bring that in as the offering of first fruits. And that indicated that there would be more of a harvest to follow, that this was just the beginning. But the implied promise is that there is more to come. And so Christ's resurrection is a promise or pledge that there is more to come. There are more resurrections to come. And then Paul explains the underlying theological or doctrinal principle in verses 21 to 22, indicated by the word for, which always in the Greek, the word is gar, indicates an explanation of something. So Paul says, for since by man came death, and here he is talking about Adam, that is, and he's talking about physical death here. This is so important. There are times when we want to look at death when it relates to the crucifixion, when it relates to man's basic problem, a spiritual death. But the context here is physical bodily resurrection, so this has to be physical death. Otherwise, you would be talking about apples and oranges. You have to keep your categories together. So for the subject to be physical bodily resurrection, this must be a reference to physical death. Now remember, physical death is not the penalty for sin, but physical death is one of the many consequences and perhaps the greatest consequence of spiritual death, that the instant Adam disobeyed God, he died spiritually. He and Eve were dead spiritually. That means that they could not have a relationship with God. Some people have trouble with this term spiritual death as if, if man is somehow inoperative uh, in his immaterial being. Remember, man is composed of three parts, human body, a human soul, and a human spirit. The human spirit is that immaterial part of man which allows the components of the soul to have a relationship with God. We've gone over this many times. The human soul is comprised of self-consciousness, which means that when you look in the mirror, you know it's you. When your dog looks in the mirror, thinks it's another dog. When you, this time of year especially, we hear funny noise around the windows, and we look, and there's a bird out there pecking at, a, at the window, thinking, seeing a reflection of a bird thinking it's going after another bird. There's no real self-consciousness or self-identity. But man has self-consciousness. He is capable of thought also. This is the second component of the soul. Mentality. Man is capable of thought. He is capable of reason. Uh, Third category in the soul 
is volition. He has self-determination. He is capable of making decisions, and he is responsible for those decisions. This is also, also relates to the first divine institution, which is human responsibility and accountability. We, we are accountable for the decisions we make with our volition. And then third, we, or fourth rather, we have a conscience. Conscience. And that conscience is the location of the norms and standards in our soul. It is where we store values, and everyone has a conscience. Even unbelievers, pagans, have a conscience. Their norms and standards may be uh, out of whack. They may be out of order. They may be based on divine viewpoint. They, there may be a complete antithesis to biblical norms and standards. But Paul argues in, first, I mean, in Romans chapter 2 that the very presence of a conscience indicates the existence of God, that there are absolutes. So these are the four components or elements that comprise the human soul, and each of these can have a direction toward God. The self-consciousness relates to God-consciousness. We understand who we are only when it's in light of God because, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, we're created in the image and likeness of God. So if you don't understand who God is, you cannot understand who you are. That's your starting point. Your starting point isn't sociology. Your starting point isn't psychology. Your starting point isn't your experience with yourself or the experiences that you have in life. The starting point for you to understand who you are and what your purpose for living is and what, God, what is being accomplished in your life has to begin with who you are as a creature created in the image and likeness of God. And as we've studied in that passage, you are designed to represent God, and or Adam was originally created to represent God as the vicegerent. Here's the word. Vicegerent. And a vicegerent is someone who is designed to reign as a representative of a higher ruler. Man was created to rule over the planet. Now, we're going to come back to that concept a little later on when we get into the angelic conflict. Man's created as the vicegerent, but he is in a post-fall environment right now and can't completely fulfill that that position. But prior to the fall, he was uh, this the image of God was not marred or distorted by sin. So self-consciousness relates to God consciousness. You can only truly understand who you are in reference to understanding who God is. That's why theology proper is so important. In mentality, we think God's thoughts after him. We have to learn to subordinate our thinking to divine viewpoint. God is the one who determines the nature of things and what is what we are to do with them. For example, in the garden, there are many things that Adam could learn independently of God through the exercise of his reason and through the exercise of his uh, empirical input from the use of his sense data. But he could not properly interpret what was going on in the garden because there was no way that either reason alone or experience or empiricism alone could inform him that 
by eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would instantly die spiritually. He couldn't learn that through empiricism or rationalism. So divine viewpoint gives us the framework for interpreting every issue in life. You cannot come up with an issue in life that the Bible doesn't give a framework of thought for. Then we have volition. This emphasizes human responsibility and accountability, and that is toward God. That as creatures uh, created in the image and likeness of God with a divine purpose and responsibility in relationship to the divine absolutes, then we are held accountable by God. And then in the conscience we have norms and standards, and this relates to divine absolutes and divine righteousness. So those are the categories. But when that which enables these four categories to relate to God is called technically, the we call it the human spirit. The Bible refers to it as spirit. And just because you see the reference to the spirit of man in some passages, it doesn't necessarily mean it's referring to the human spirit. We've studied this many times in the past, that the word spirit has a general sense and a technical sense, and context is important. Now, when Adam ate from the fruit of the tree the knowledge of good and evil, he lost that capacity, that human spirit capacity, which allowed the elements of the soul to relate to God. So he was no longer God conscious. His self-consciousness and self-identity is now determined from the limited perspective of his own experience. And that leads him to a distorted view of who he is. And he loses divine viewpoint, and so his mentality is now trying to create and generate an understanding of reality completely apart from, uh, from God. His volition is now negative. And he, is, he tries to re, uh, ignore the fact that he's accountable to God. And in his conscience, he starts building his own norms and standards apart from God's divine righteousness. It is at salvation, when we put our faith alone in Christ alone, that we are said to be regenerate or born again. The very concept of being born again implies that there's something that doesn't exist that comes into existence. What is it that is birthed at the instant of our salvation? And what is birthed is this human spirit. And we are regenerate so that once again we can begin to function in our soul in these four categories in a direction toward God. In a post-fall environment, we can only have a limited function in terms of our vicegerency. But we are being prepared to rule and reign with Christ where this will ultimately be fulfilled in the millennial uh, in the millennial kingdom. So we have to understand the purpose of man in his creation and the fall of man which creates the problem. And as a result of spiritual death, when he dies spiritually and loses that human spirit, there are numerous consequences, the most extreme of which is physical death. Physical death does, is not mentioned until the end of Genesis chapter 3. But the instant that Adam ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he died spiritually. He could no longer have a relationship to God. When God came to walk in the garden, as he did every day to teach Adam and the woman, what happened was that they ran and hid. This indicates that they are in a status of spiritual death. 
because they no longer understand him. They no longer understand what the issues are. They are now dominated by fear, and they try to solve the problem on their own. The problem, the uh, presenting problem they had was they were, became aware of their own nakedness, their own vulnerability, and they tried to solve the problem by creating clothing out of fig leaves. And God has to provide a more permanent solution. Death is a consequence. All human suffering is a consequence of that one problem. Death is the most extreme form of that. So this is why resurrection is important, is because, as we'll see when we get down to about verse 26, that the last enemy that is destroyed is death. And this is talking about physical death. And as a result of that, there is a resolution to this entire problem of sin, suffering, evil that began not at the fall, but ultimately began with Satan's original uh, sin and the angelic revolt in eternity past. Now, as we looked at the passage last week, we saw that in verse 22, Paul goes on to explain that man, since by man came death, that is physical death, by man also came resurrection of the dead. Jesus Christ had to be true humanity in order to conquer human physical death. And the principle is, verse 22, For as in Adam all die, that is, every human being is born in Adam, identified with Adam. We are all genetically related. There is a genetic homogeneity to the human race. And, it, and, and our relationship to Adam means that we are all born in a status of spiritual death, and we will all eventually die physically. But even so, those who are in Christ, that is, everyone who has put their faith alone in Christ alone, shall be made alive. There will be a resurrection. This is not talking about regeneration here at salvation. This is talking about physical resurrection. He goes on to say in the next verse, but each one in his own order. Each one what in his own order? Each one will be made alive in his own order. That can't be talking about physical, I mean, that can't be talking about regeneration. We are not made alive or regenerated in our own order. We are made alive physically, though, in our own order because there are different ranks of resurrection. Now, I have gone back and cleaned up some things in relationship to this verse. I want to clarify that, and we have a new chart to look at in just a minute. 1 Corinthians 15:23. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and after that those who are Christ's, at His coming. So let's go back and review the order of resurrections in order to understand a couple of important interpretive issues in the next three verses. We better get that order of resurrections fixed in our minds again. The question that we're going to have to answer is, what does it mean Christ at His coming. Is that talking about the rapture of the church, or is that talking about the second coming? Rapture of the church is what happens at the end of the present church age when Jesus Christ returns in the clouds, when He is not seen by anyone except church age believers, when, at, at which point all church age believ- believers, dead 
and those who are still alive will be caught up to be with him in the clouds. And then they go to heaven. And there's a distinction between the rapture and the second coming of Christ when Christ comes with his bride to the earth and every eye will behold him, according to uh, Revelation. Every eye will behold him at that second coming. At the rapture, no one sees him except the except believers. So we have to distinguish between that, and we have to figure out what this verse is talking about. So to do that, we have to go back and review the uh, resurrection battalions. That word tagma has the is a military term for a division or an army or a corps. It has to do with some sort of military grouping. So we have battalions made up of different companies. There are actually two resurrections mentioned in the Scripture. There's the first resurrection and the second resurrection. The first resurrection is made up of different groups or companies, just like an army battalion is made up of different companies. And there are, after I got started on this, I, I corrected it, six stages on the first resurrection. Six stages on the first resurrection. The first is Jesus Christ, the first fruit. He was raised from the dead, received his resurrection body as a guarantee of our resurrection body in circa A.D. 33, when he rose from the dead on that day of first fruits following his crucifixion. The second company, the second group, is the group of church-age believers. This takes place at the rapture. We don't know when that will be. It is yet future. So far, about 1,900-plus years have gone by, and the rapture has not yet occurred. It could be today. It could be tonight. It could, not, it could be for another 100 years. We don't know. It is, there are no signs, as we'll see as we study in Revelation, there are no prophetic signs that must take place before the coming of Christ. What are we to be looking for? Are we to be looking for the appearance of the Antichrist? Are we to be looking for the uh, increase in signs? No, what we are to be looking for is the glorious appearance of Jesus Christ. That is the blessed hope. That's what we're looking for. There's nothing that has to happen prior to the return of Jesus Christ. So the rapture can occur at any moment. The third group that receives a resurrection body. The third group is the two tribulation witnesses. The two tribulation witnesses are martyred halfway through the tribulation. They're laid out for public inspection for three days, and then they are resurrected and taken to heaven. So they receive resurrection bodies halfway through the tribulation. The fourth group refers to tribulation martyrs. Last week when I gave this, I classified them together with the next group, the Old Testament saints. But they're two different groups of believers. The tribulation martyrs lived during the tribulation. Old Testament saints died in the Old Testament prior to the crucifixion of Christ. So I will separate those out into two different groups. That occurs at the end of the tribulation. Tribulation martyrs and Old Testament saints will receive their resurrection bodies at the end of the tribulation. And then the sixth group, which isn't printed in there, the sixth group are the millennial saints. When believers die, and it will be extremely 
rare for a believer to die physically during the millennium, but when that occurs, he will receive his resurrection body either instantaneously or at the end of the millennium. We're not sure. I tend to favor the idea that he receives it instantaneously, but we just don't know. The Scriptures do not mention that at all. That is the sixth resurrection. All of that comprises the first resurrection. No believers are involved in the second resurrection. The second resurrection involves unbelievers throughout all of human history. And this takes place at the great white throne judgment when they are judged and then they are uh, found wanting because all they have is good works. They don't have the perfect righteousness of Christ and they are sentenced to the lake of fire. They are not sentenced to eternity in the lake of fire because of sin. That sin was paid for by Christ on the cross. They are sentenced to the lake of fire because they rejected the divine solution, which is redemption. They do not possess the perfect righteousness of Christ, therefore. And without having perfect righteousness, they cannot have a relationship with God. They try to make it on their own, and the result of that is eternal condemnation. Now, there's a reason for that that I'll tie together when we get to the angelic conflict. And it relates to the fact that God is demonstrating something vital in history. This is why the punishment is so extreme. You know, we always run into people who say, well, how can a loving God send his creatures to the lake of fire? And what the angelic conflict demonstrates is exactly why this is so. See, all throughout Scripture you have a clear pattern. We've studied this two or three weeks ago, I think, on Wednesday night in the Doctrine of Capital Punishment, that the Scripture lays down a, a rule. It's called by the Latin phrase lex talionis. And in, in basic terms, it means that the punishment must fit the crime. And you see this all the way through Scripture, that the punishment fits the crime. Now, you would th- think that if the eternity in the lake of fire is the punishment then that tells us that the crime must be extremely severe. And what is the crime? The crime, I put that in quotation marks, is a rejection of God's provision. It's a rebellion against the authority of God. Why then is that so extreme? See, we don't want to think of it as being that extreme. But what God is demonstrating in history is exactly why that is so extreme why it demands such a horrible, eternal condemnation and punishment. So we have these two resurrection uh, battalions here, and the first resurrection battalion includes uh, Christ, church-age believers at the rapture, the two tribulation witnesses, tribulation martyrs, Old Testament saints. Up to that point, you have all of those resurrected by the second coming of Jesus Christ. There it is. Millennial saints come in, of course, during the millennium. So what are we referring to when we get into our passage in 1 Corinthians 15.23? Christ is the first fruits, and after that, those who are Christ at His coming. And then we have a verse in verse 24, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to the Father. Okay, now, the first word there in verse 24 is the Greek word eta. Looks like this. 
E-I-T-A. And this is a temporal particle indicating a passage of time between the end of verse 23 and the events of verse 24. Now, it can be a short time, it can be a long time. You have to look at what, what is being explained in the passage. But what we see in verse 24 is that there is going to be the end of history when Jesus Christ is going to deliver the kingdom of the kingdom to God the Father. Now, when does that take place? It doesn't take place at the second coming. That is when Jesus Christ receives the kingdom. That is when he, in fact, inaugurates and establishes the kingdom. Let me go to a chart that by now should be familiar to most of you. The prophetic panorama, you're going to have this ingrained in your souls. You'll be dreaming about it by the time we get through with Revelation. We're living in the church age. In the church age, all unbelievers are go to Hades. It's a holding, sort of a holding cell waiting for the final judgment. Church age believers are raptured at the end of the church age. Then the tribulation, seven years. During the tribulation, you have the judgment seat of Christ and the marriage of the Lamb. That takes place in heaven. This ends with the second coming when Jesus Christ returns to the earth, at which time there's a judgment that you have the uh, next stage of, where you have the resurrection bodies going to Old Testament believers and the tribulation saints, and there's a judgment of tribulation believers, a separation of the, of the sheep and the goats, and then Jesus Christ establishes the kingdom, the 1,000-year kingdom known as the millennial kingdom from the Latin word milli, meaning a thousand. In the early church, this view was known as kiliasm from the Greek word, uh, meaning 1,000. It is also referred to as the messianic kingdom because this is the promised kingdom to Israel in the Old Testament that the Messiah would come and establish a kingdom on earth. Jesus Christ established this, so establishes this at the second coming. So verse 24 cannot be speaking of the second coming because this is when Christ delivers the kingdom to God the Father. This takes place at the end of the millennium. So let's go back and try to define that word coming in verse 23. What does that word coming mean? What is it? That's the first thing we have to address. And in the Greek, this is the word parousia. P-A-R-O-U-S-I-A. And this is a word that is just a general word for the arrival of someone. And some people have taken this, tried to make this a, or forced this word to refer to the rapture. It's not a rapture word. I think twice in all the New Testament it refers to the rapture. The rest of the time it refers to the second coming. But it is just a a generic term, and you must go to the context to determine whether this is the rapture or the second coming. It is simply talking about the arrival of Christ. And I think that what we see here 
in verse 23, each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and afterwards those who are Christ's at his coming. And this would include all the millennial saints, I mean all the saints up to the beginning of the millennium, which is when Christ first returns at the second coming. But he is here as a result of his second coming throughout the millennial kingdom. And so that picks up those, millennial, those few millennial saints who die then. And then... After that, after all have been resurrected, including millennial saints, then, then the end. There is no comes in the uh, original Greek. It is simply then the end. This is the end of the millennial kingdom. Then the end. When he, that is Jesus Christ, we have to be careful to identify the third person singular pronouns here. Who are the he's and the him's? Then the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. When he, this again is going to be Jesus Christ, when he puts an end, or excuse me, the he here refers to God the Father. When he then puts an end, Excuse me, I was right the first time. The second he, the pronouns here both refer to Jesus Christ. Then the end, when he, Jesus Christ, delivers the kingdom to God the Father. Why can he deliver the kingdom now to God the Father? That's the next uh, uh, temporal phrase. When he puts an end to all rule and all authority... And power. What do these terms, rule and all authority and power, in verse 24, uh, to what do they refer? These are terms that refer to angels and to angelic powers. And Jesus Christ is going to abolish that. And the verb there is katargeo in the Greek. Katargeo, and it is a future active subjunctive. The subjunctive is related to the fact that it's potential. It hasn't happened yet. It takes place in the future. And katargeo, K-A-T-A-R-G-E-O, is the word that we saw over in 1 Corinthians 13, 8, or 9, and 9 through 11, having to do with the nullification or abolition of the spiritual gifts. It means to abolish something, to destroy something, to completely nullify, to bring something to an end. So in verse 24, this happens when... These, whatever is referred to here as rules and authorities and powers, are going to be completely abolished. Now, when does that take place? Even though the demons are consigned to the lake of fire along with the false prophet and antichrist at the end of the tribulation, Satan is only bound for a thousand years. He's released. He is released at the end of the millennial kingdom at which time he will lead a revolt among humanity against the rule of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And that's described at the end of Revelation chapter 20. God will bring down fire and brimstone from heaven to destroy Satan and the human army that he brings together at the end of the millennium. This is the final defeat of Satan, at which time he is consigned for all eternity to the lake of fire. So his career doesn't come to an end until the conclusion of the millennium. So when we look at verse 24, then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he has abolished uh, all rule, and, and there it's a, excuse, excuse me, I said it was a future tense, that's, a, there's a, uh, that's an heiress tense. At that point he will have already abolished all rule and authority and power. That marks the time of the end of the kingdom. the end of the kingdom, and at which time there's the destruction of the present heavens and earth. But Jesus Christ then turns over the kingdom to God the Father. Now, the fact that these terms are used, rule and authority and power, we need to investigate them. We see them in passages such as Romans 8:38 and 39, where Paul says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities... Nor things, nor, nor things present and things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And here we have the mention of principalities, angels, principalities, and powers. These refer to different rankings of angels. You see it again in Ephesians 1.21, talking about the ascension that Jesus Christ ascended far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And here we have the phrase rule and authority and power, and that is the same phrase that we have in 1 Corinthians 15:24. The first word rule is the Greek word arche. Arche sometimes means beginning. It has the root concept of first. So it is those who are in ultimate authority, A-R-C-H-E, R-K. So many times it's just simply translated beginning, but it has to do with rule or ruler. So that's an ultimate level, sort of the general staff on the army, uh, on the demonic army ranking level. The second category is authorities, ex-usia. E-X-O-U-S-I-A. This would be a one rank lower. These are the authorities. And then powers. And this is from the uh, Greek word uh, dunamis. So you have this ranking of rulers authorities, and powers. And this describes the ranking of, of the demons. Now, why do, would I say that in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 24, the, rule, the, author, the rulers, the authorities, and the powers would be demonic? Because Christ has to subject them. He has to bring them into subjection. So it's obviously talking about a group that is in opposition to him and that he has to abolish. He's not going to abolish the angels 
but he is going to defeat and abolish the demonic powers. This happens finally with the defeat of Satan at the end of the millennial kingdom. So we go back to our chart, and we see that there is a judgment at the end of the millennium when all unbelievers, all fallen angels and Satan are permanently consigned to the lake of fire. The present heavens and the earth are destroyed according to 1 Peter chapter 3, and then God creates a new heavens and a new earth. It is at that point, at the destruction of the present heavens and the present earth, with the final defeat of Satan, that death is finally abolished, physical death. Remember, we're talking about physical death. What happens at the end of the tribul- I mean, at the end of the millennium? Satan is released. There's the Gog and Magog rebellion, and God brings down fire and brimstone from heaven to destroy all the humans who fight with Satan. That's physical death. So it has, that has to await until the end of the millennial kingdom. And at which point, the last enemy that is abolished is death. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 26. Now let's summarize. 1 Corinthians 15, 23. Each one in his own order, his own battalion... Christ the first fruits, then each of the other groupings from each of the other ages, the, the rapture, mid-trib, mid there'll be the two witnesses into the trib, tribulation saints and millennial, I mean, in, uh, Old Testament saints and tribulation martyrs, and then in the millennial kingdom, those few believers who, who die. Then comes the end, that is the end of the millennial kingdom, when he, Jesus Christ, delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he, that is Jesus Christ, puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For explanation, he must reign until, that indicates a termination of that, that kingdom, he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. Now the first he is God the Father. The second his is Jesus Christ. Now, we know that from Psalm Psalm 8. So you can hold your place here, and let's go back to Psalm 8, because the quote that he has put all things under his feet comes from Psalm 8, 6. So let's get the context. Psalm 8, 1 for the choir director on the getith. That was a musical instrument. This is a psalm of David, written by David. It begins, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor among the heavens. David is, this is almost a prophetic psalm because it is looking forward to the time when God will bring uh, all of creation back under his authority. Psalm 8.2, from the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. So this is looking forward to the fact that God will destroy all of his enemies, angelic and human, and have victory in human history. Verse 3, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? 
And so the psalmist begins to shift his focus. He's looking forward to the fact that God will ultimately destroy his enemies. But with verse 4, he's reflecting on the means God uses to destroy those enemies. And that is going to be done through a human being. Now, let's take a moment for review. Remember when we studied the ascension and session of Christ last summer. talked about the fact that Jesus Christ rose bodily, physically, from the grave. And then, on uh, just ten days before the uh, Feast of Pentecost, He ascended physically and bodily to heaven through the heavens. We studied various passages where that terminology was used. To sit at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. Now, deity doesn't sit, only humanity sits. And Jesus Christ is currently seated at the right hand of God the Father in His humanity. And we looked at this verse a few minutes ago, Ephesians 1.21, where we were reminded that He rose above all principalities and powers and rulers and authorities. And so at the ascension of Christ, a human being, Christ in hypostatic union, still is joined to humanity, As a man, he sits at the right hand of God the Father, and for the first time in history, a man is in authority over the angels. Now, before the incarnation, Jesus Christ, as the second person of the Trinity, was in authority over the angels. But Ephesians 1.21 is emphasizing the fact that it is now a man, a human being, who is in authority over the angels. Now, that has to happen because of the angelic conflict. It is going to be a man, a human being, that is going to be the human race that is going to bring resolution to the angelic conflict. And it is a human being who has to end death eventually, which brings to an end all suffering and evil in the universe. See, this goes back to the same basic problem we've addressed many times, and that is that that we're often confronted in our lives with, with suffering, personal suffering. We see suffering in the world around us. Often we're faced with heartache and disappointment, disillusionment. Things happen. We go through hard times. We go through difficult times. We're surprised. We have people who go through incredible suffering in, uh, in this life. And we're incredibly blessed living in this country. Every time I travel out of this country and go to a third world country, and see how most of the people on this world live, we just ought to get on our knees every day and thank God that we live in this country and we have all the things that we have. Even when things are the worst that they are in most of our lives, it is so much better than what 98% of humanity is experiencing on a daily basis. And we tend to forget that in our arrogant self-absorption. But the point is that we all go through suffering. We all go through heartache. Why? What? Why does that happen? And the way we come to understand that ultimately is by understanding the angelic conflict and what has to happen to end this. What has to happen to resolve all of this so that it comes to a closure? It can't just, God can't just snap his fingers and it's over with. There has to be a resolution that fits his divine Uh, judgment. So David is reflecting on this in Psalm 8, and he realizes that all of this has to happen through a human being. 
And he says, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? And the term son of man there is not a technical term for Christ. This is in, in synonymous parallelism with the use of man in the first, first line. And son of man simply means someone who's a human being. So he's saying, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man, i.e. human beings, that you care for him? Why is man so important? Verse 5, yet you have made him a little lower than God, and and you crown him with glory and majesty. And here he's reflecting on the fact that the human race is created lower than God, yet eventually the human race will be crowned through the ultimate human being, the Lord Jesus Christ, with glory and majesty. Verse 6, you make him to rule over the works of your hands, You have put all things under His feet. And this resolution ultimately comes about when Jesus Christ uh, defeats all all of the enemies of God, including death, and then delivers everything over to God. This is brought into into conclusion in verses 26 to 28. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. And then verse 27, For He has put all things in subjection under His feet. And this is a reference to Psalm 8.6. And then Paul comments on that verse. But when he says, that is when God the Father says, all things are put in subjection, it is evident that He, God the Father, is accepted who put all things in subjection to Him, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the he refers to the Lord, to God the Father, the he, I mean the him, to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is evident that he, God the Father, is accepted, who put all things in subjection to him. Verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, that is to Jesus Christ, as a human being, then the Son himself will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to Him. So the one who subjected all things to Him is God the Father, so that God may be all in all. And that reference is temp- uh, to eternity future. So there's an ultimate return of all things under the authority of God. This is the conclusion and the resolution of the angelic conflict. Now, Why is all of that important? The key here is to understand the use of this verb several times, four times in verses 27 and 28. The word that is translated subjection and is translated as the aorist tense or past tense subjected in verse 28 is the Greek verb hupotasso. H-U-P-O-T-A-S-S-O. Hupotasso is a military term for, for being under the authority of a commander. Being under the authority of a commander. Now, what is happening here? We're already running out of time. I have 15 points on the angelic conflict. 
rather than going through them in 15 points, I'm going to try to summarize this. We just have to learn to think this way. I mean, it's not important to get down all the points. What's important is to learn to think in terms of what God is doing in human history. How did we get into this mess, and how are things resolved? To do that, we have to understand the overall structure that goes beyond human history, and that is the angelic conflict. Remember, the angelic conflict began in eternity past when Lucifer led a revolt against God. This is described in Isaiah chapter 14 and in Ezekiel chapters 28. Isaiah 14 expresses the five I will statements which express Satan's innermost thoughts, which express his, his arrogance, which is referenced in Ezekiel chapter 28. And in Isaiah 14, Lucifer expresses... His desire, verse 13, he says, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. That is, he wants to be an authority over all the angels. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation. That is a place, uh, a reference to where God would rule over the assembly of the angels. Uh, Verse 14, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. Clouds usually refers or frequently refers in Scripture to the presence of God. When Jesus Christ returns at the second coming, he comes with the clouds, not in the clouds like the rapture, but with the clouds. That's an indication of divine uh, presence. I will be like the Most High. Satan's goal is to rule as God. He is a creature, though. He is limited. He's finite. He doesn't have the unlimited infinite attributes that God has. He's not omniscient, omnipotent, or omnipresent. But his goal is to rule like God. In the angelic conflict, the rebellion of Satan is a claim that the creature can operate successfully independently of God. The creature doesn't need the creator. A creature can do it just as well as God can do it. That's his claim. Well, we know from Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, that God apparently convened a trial to judge Satan and the angels that followed him. A third of the angels followed him in his rebellion against God. And according to Matthew 25:41, the lake of fire was created for the devil and his angels. But they're not there yet. They are not consigned to the lake of fire until the end of the millennium. Now, why is it that they're not there yet? Apparently, there was some sort of challenge to God's character. Some of the things that I alluded to earlier would be part of this. We haven't a scripture to document this, but there's, there's inferences from numerous things, including Satan's desire to prove that he can rule like God. And this is a key to understanding everything. It challenges God's love. How can a loving God consign his creatures to the lake of fire? And the question here isn't just so much how can God punish his creatures in such a horrible way, but why in the, how in the world can God, is God going to judge us in such an extreme way that we will spend eternity in, in the lake of fire with no way out? The, the, the penalty doesn't seem to fit the crime. I just wanted to be independent of you, God. Why is that such a horrible, horrible thing? So it's a challenge to God's justice, but what's embedded there is also a challenge that the punishment doesn't fit the crime. Along with this, 
is the claim that the creature ought to be able to and can somehow rule creation or live his life or find happiness, success, meaning, and fulfillment apart from absolute 100% devotion and obedience and dependence on the Creator. So what God does is he creates man as a test case, as an experiment. Now, in the technical meaning of the word experiment, you see, some of you will experiment with something to find out what will happen. That's not what experiment means. Look it up in the dictionary. An experiment, it technically means to go through a process to prove a known truth, to demonstrate a known principle. And so what God is going to demonstrate by this experiment of the human race is to demonstrate that the creature can't operate independent of God. That even when the creature does something that is innocuous, perhaps we might call it innocent, but it's done in a way that is independent from God, the unintended consequences are so horrendous and so evil and so destructive that embedded in a simple act such as eating a piece of fruit, you know, Adam didn't, commit genocide. Adam didn't drive under the influence of alcohol. He wasn't prejudiced or any of the other political sins that everybody, politically correct sins that everybody gets so upset about today. Adam didn't do any of those things. He just ate a piece of fruit, an innocuous act, but it was done in independence of God. And look at what's happened as a result of that. Look at all of the evil, all of the suffering, all of the heartache, all the wars, all the famines, all the physical catastrophes, all the earthquakes, all the hurricanes, all the suffering that the human race has gone through all stems from Adam eating a piece of fruit. See, what God is demonstrating there is see how horrendous the crime is? This is why the lake of fire is eternal, is because the crime is so horrendous. When the creature acts independently from the Creator, the act itself may seem innocent and innocuous and limited. But because of the structure of reality, when the creature acts independently from the Creator, it, it, it's like it creates some sort of fissure in reality and, and, and it, an earthquake in reality, and the reverberations destroy everything. And no matter what it is, if you do anything that's independent of the creature, of the Creator, it is going to be, end up being destructive and bring about all of this evil. Therefore, the punishment for eternity in the lake of fire is nothing compared to the horrors created by a creature wanting to act independently from the Creator. This sets up human history. This is why Adam was created to be the ruler over the planet. He has the authority over the planet. It's God's kingdom. But when Adam sinned, he lost that position and Satan became the ruler of the planet. He's called the ruler of this world in John 12:31, in John 14:30, the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2:2, the god of this age in 2 Corinthians 4:4. 4, 4. When he tempts Jesus in the wilderness and says, "I will give you the kingdoms," Jesus doesn't challenge his authority to do so because he is the ruler of the world, the prince of this age. He is the ruler of the kingdom. There's an ongoing battle, therefore, between Satan's angels, Satan's kingdom, and God's kingdom. But the strategic victory, which has to do with the overall foundational victory, was achieved by Jesus Christ on the cross. And the conclusion of that 
strategic victory, which begins with his death on the cross, where the sin penalty is paid for, is concluded when Jesus Christ ascends in his humanity over the angels to sit at the right hand of God the Father and to rule. That finishes the strategic victory. At that point, he has canceled the power, he has defeated the power of Satan and his demons. That consequence, though, now has to be worked out tactically in the life of believers. This is where you and I come in. It's how we live our Christian life. This plays into the outworking of that of that mission because every time we face suffering, heartache, every time we face adversity and tests, when we apply doctrine, that demonstrates the principle that the creature can't have success, happiness, meaning, fulfillment apart from the uh, Creator. And we are become witnesses and evidence against Satan in the angelic conflict. Furthermore, as we go through those tests and adversities, what's happening is we are being trained to rule and reign with Christ in the future millennial kingdom. Because what he's going to do is come to earth and establish a kingdom in what has been Satan's domain. And he is going to bring then, at that time, resolution to that which was lost at the fall. And it ultimately becomes resolved and finally becomes resolved at the end of the millennial kingdom when Satan leads that last revolt against God and is defeated. And what happens throughout all of human history from the fall of Adam to the eventual defeat of Satan is that every conceivable option is tried by the creature to live independently from God and to make life work. And what God demonstrates is no matter what the creature does, no matter how he tries to do it, he can try every scenario possible. It's always going to end in defeat and misery and sin and suffering. The creature cannot live independently from the Creator. And what is necessary to bring about the conclusion of this strategic victory? the physical, bodily resurrection of Christ. It's not just to demonstrate God approved what happened at the cross. What Paul is arguing here is the physical, bodily resurrection of Christ has cosmic reverberations because it allows a human being to go to the right hand of God to exercise authority over all the angels and ultimately to resolve the whole problem of sin, suffering, and evil and to bring to destruction all of the enemies that have arrayed themselves against God. This is the importance of the physical bodily resurrection of Christ. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for such a great insight into what you have accomplished in history, that this is not just some historical fact that Christ was raised from the dead, not just some interesting theological uh, nicety that we learn that he has been raised bodily from the grave to ascend to heaven to rule over the angels, but that this is all designed to bring resolution to the sin, suffering, evil, the unjustified, undeserved suffering that we face in life, to bring resolution to everything so that the kingdom that was lost when Adam sinned is finally recovered by a human being and restored to you through the act of that one human being, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.
Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their eternal life or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. All you have to do is to put your faith alone in Christ alone. Scripture is clear. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's not a matter of works. It's not a matter of religious uh, ritual. It's not a matter of doing good, joining the right church. It is simply a matter of trusting in Christ alone for salvation. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied this morning. We pray this in his precious name. Amen.